he took me through several studies in Campus Crusade uh, material and uh, taught me how to use the four spiritual laws, and we went out sharing the gospel house to house and on the streets, and it was really, really something. Later on in my uh, adult life, young adult life, as a youth pastor, I, I was a youth pastor in a church in Walla Walla, Bethel Assembly of God, and I became friends with the InterVarsity staff worker uh, at Whitman College. Uh, his name was Warren. And uh, Warren was a master of leading small groups and through passages of scripture. He taught me much about um, personal Bible study and leading small groups. Still later, uh, I was an intern assistant, uh, an assistant uh, minister of adult Christian education in Bellevue, Washington. And um, uh, the head pastor there had been discipled in navigators. And so when, when he was in college, so we worked through what the, we all worked through um, the Navigators 2-7 series, and we memorized a lot of scripture. So we have three different discipleship ministries and three different types of focus. One is crusading, sharing the gospel, campus crusades. One is more cerebral, intellectual, in a varsity, how to get into the word, dig it out. And, uh, and then it, the third one is uh, Navigators. They, they, in, they of course, uh, in, uh, emphasize evangelism, but they also emphasize scripture memory. And so through the Navigators, I memorized a, a ton of, of, uh, of the scriptures. Um, if I were to oversimplify, and of course this has been many years ago that I was involved in these ministries, and they may have changed, um, we could characterize them this way. Campus Crusades were crusaders. They were everywhere sharing the four spiritual laws. InterVarsity was emphasizing inductive Bible study, and the Navigators how to memorize scriptures, and all of these were fine ministries to be involved in. And in a, a similar way, each gospel writer, when each gospel writer has a, a different emphasis uh, or emphasizes different aspects of the Christian disciple. While the gospel of Matthew and Mark and Luke have many similarities, they each contain a particular teaching on the theme of discipleship or particular emphasis, and it's really fun to go through the Gospels and just kind of mark how they, the, the Gospels show the disciples in different lights and the things that they're learning. So the Gospel of John is no, uh, is, does the same thing. John emphasizes the word belief, and particularly belief or acceptance of Jesus, his claims regarding who he is and his relationship with his father, and the disciples are those who recognize Jesus and believe for who he truly is. First time the word discipleship appears in John, um, it's in the first or in the second chapter, and that's at the wedding of Canaan of Galilee, where Jesus performs a miracle of turning the water into wine. And at the end of that episode, John inserts this editorial note. This is the first of the signs Jesus did at Canaan of Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So you can see, right at the beginning of the gospel, there's this emphasis on believe in him. And then later in the last chapter, one of the, uh, one of the last chapters, chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, which is really the, the, what we would call the thesis statement of the gospel, it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these signs are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
So there you have it. That's the kind of the overarching theme of the Gospel of John is to believe and in our believing have life in Jesus. And so um, when Jesus was recognized as the, the Messiah, uh, one, when one came to recognize Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, one became a disciple in John's terms. Now belief, particularly as John presents it, is something very dynamic. It's just not something like vague, you know, so it's like, I mean, if we were on the streets right now and say, do you believe in God? I mean, almost everybody would say, yeah. Well, what's that God like? Well, then we get into different particulars, right? So there's a sense of believing, but it's not something, a, a belief in the Gospel of John is, is something that's dynamic. It's not static. It's vital. It's a living reality in which disciples continually grow, especially in their understanding and their perception of who Jesus is. Again, all the gospel writers demonstrate the disciples' need for growth and recognition and appreciation of Jesus. And as they go through their particular um, view on discipleship, they bring out things where one gospel remains a bit silent or mute and, and then where another speaks loudly. Now, I have often thought about the scene, uh, the scene in, in Mark's gospel when Jesus is walking on the shore of the Sea of Galilee and he called Peter, Andrew, John, and James. That really comes up right away in the first chapter of Mark. And I, I've always had this, this question in my mind. It says that they immediately, when Jesus asked them to come follow me, he commanded, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. It says they immediately dropped their nets and followed him. Now here's the question. Uh, I always kind of, uh, by reading the rest of the gospel, I, I, I asked myself this question. Did they have any clue of what they were getting themselves into. <laughs> Not a clue. Not really. They had their ideas of who Jesus as Messiah should be and what the Messiah should do. Their notion of Messiah was a mixture both of truth and error, which they maintained. They maintained their point of view very ten with tenacity. And I won't take time to point out on the gospel how many times that what, that what Jesus revealed about himself in word or deed was at cross-purposes with the disciples, and it was what we might call a teachable moment. Um, and over the three years of his earthly ministry, Jesus had to, to correct his disciples, sometimes rebuke his disciples, and he loved on his disciples, and he taught them. And in this correction, uh, he was correcting their misconception of who he is as a person and his ministry. And these lessons were, I would say for them, very earth-shattering. Like this is, uh, you might, we might go back to that moment where they dropped the nets and think, I didn't sign up for this type of moment, you know. Uh, are you sure? Pick up my cross, follow you? I don't think so. Doesn't, doesn't work for me. Uh, that's what they might have thought. So these, were, these lessons were earth-shattering moments in their life, and it really tested their faith. The truth is that Jesus' ministry with his disciples was a, a process of what's called deconstruction and reconstruction. He was deconstructing their ideas, their false ideas and their false hopes, and then reconstructing them around the good news of the gospel and his person. And it was a long and sometimes very difficult process for the disciples. One of the many ways that John underscores the importance of discipleship in his gospel is through, we look through here, belief and life. So that belief and life become the distinguishing mark of the true disciples 
of Christ, and the false disciples are those who don't have, who really don't believe, and have not received the light. <coughs> this comes out clearly in John chapter six. At the end, you you remember John chapter six is the Jesus discourse on the the bread of life. I am the bread of life, and he and says you must eat of me. And <coughs> and Jesus has explicit explicit command to believe in him, and they will have eternal life. But at the end of that discourse, we read this. From this time, many of disciples, his disciples, not the twelve, but others that call themselves disciples, turned their back and no longer followed him. In other words, Jesus wasn't fulfilling the idea and the norm of what they thought the Messiah should be, and they turned their back on Jesus. And that's a very sad moment in the, in the gospel. But it does show that some who call themselves disciples were really false disciples. So, and we note here as, as um, um <coughs> that those who turned their back on them were disciples, and they thought of themselves as disciples of Jesus, but Jesus reveals in his revelation of his, who he is and what he says and what he expected of his disciples, many turned away from uh, because their faith was inadequate or defective. And so... I think it's under, it's, we, we can give a lot of sympathy to these people if we look at ourselves. It, it's easy to understand uh, as we look at ourselves. Many come to Jesus because, and then because they'd heard and seen, uh, heard his teaching or seen his miraculous works. There, you, you read the Gospels and there's always this crowd kind of hovering in the background. They're, they're there, right? They're just there. They're, it's, they're, they're sometimes indifferent, sometimes hostile, sometimes very very uh, open, and, and always it says, and Jesus loved them deeply and wanted them to come to him. But each had different ideas about what it meant to be a disciple, and one was that, was, that definition was far different from the Jesus, uh, Jesus' own definition and intention for discipleship. And so I, I, I think, well, aren't we like that? And I mean, our culture and, and the proclivities of our culture have formed us, we might say discipled us in certain ways, has shaped our desires, it shapes our outlook on life, it just shapes, it, it tells us, our culture says what's, what's important and how one is successful, and we all come to Jesus with all this baggage. And Jesus starts picking apart some of these things that we hold very precious to our heart. Not that they're bad, in many cases, not that they're bad in some way, but often it's because they become more our God and we become more the disciple of those desires than we become disciples of Jesus. And that Jesus had a different ideas about what that meant, and we're like that. Um, so, so we'll give we'll give a little space to the the uh, the uh, gospel writers as they kill the sins of the disciples or the misunderstandings of the disciples. And we should probably be reading that with a very sympathetic way, saying, "Going, man, I'm just like that. I'm just like Peter, or I'm just like." when Peter denied Jesus, or I'm like, like the, the, the three that he had in Gethsemane, more concerned about my own sleep than Jesus, what Jesus is experiencing at this moment. Uh, I find that the call of my culture is more important than the call of my, my Lord. And, and those are certain things that we all work through in our life. Um, so these characteristics, we find in John this idea between a true disciple and a false disciple. So with that in mind, uh, we and, and the, important, the importance of belief and eternal life in John's gospel, 
we can now ask this question. What prominent characteristic of discipleship do we find in Gospel of John? So John records three times that Jesus says, and you'll be my disciples, or my disciples indeed, in three different passages, which I'm going to share this morning. One is, the first is abiding in Jesus. Abiding in Jesus' word in John 8, uh, verse 31 and 32. And then the second characteristic is love for one another, which is in John 13, <coughs> 34 and 35. <coughs> and then the last one is this, it bearing fruit. So those are the three pillars. Uh, abiding in Jesus' word, love for one another, and bearing fruit. And these characteristics, by these characteristics, we know who a true believer or disciple is in, in John's terms. And ultimately, we know then what a false disciple is like as well, because they'll be known by the absence of these characteristics. So, Let's begin with John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed, now note that, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Can I be a real disciple? And these words Jesus offers to his listeners both a challenge and two promises. And he does this because he's obviously this detected some defective belief among those who are calling themselves believers. Um, there was faith in some way, but it was inadequate or it was shallow or defective. And John doesn't leave us in doubt why that is the case. Now, we're not taking time to, to look at the whole context here, um, but if we read the rest of John chapter 8, we would see that these Jewish believers began to argue with Jesus and state that they don't need the liberty that he promises. Because he had said, it says after this, what are you talking about liberty? We've never been in bondage to anyone. And, and I, I read that with a, having you know, studied the history of Israel, the, especially you know, the history of Israel or the biblical history of Israel, and you start thinking, how can, how can they say that? Because I find it's an incredible argument. Uh, by their own history, the Jews had been under the domination of the Babylonians in the exile, and when they returned from exile, uh, the Persians destroyed the Babylonian Empire, and they were under the authority of the Persians for a number of years. And then they were under the authority of the Greeks after the Greeks conquered the Persians. And now, when Jesus, when they're speaking, they're under the boot of Rome who conquered the Greeks. And they said, and they are under the authority, lack of freedom, politically speaking, because they're under Rome. And so, in this discourse, in chapter 8, uh, we read that the Jews uh, are denying that they need this freedom because they've always they've never been in term, uh, never been bound and, and yet there they were. And if we read further in the discourse in chapter eight, we read that the Jews become hostile to Jesus. Now we're talking about the people who said they believe Jesus. Get this, and now they're hostile to Jesus, and they're hostile. And and <coughs> and uh, it is then that these words, "If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples," this offers that challenge. Challenge to lay aside certain false beliefs and grab a hold of Jesus as he really is. <coughs> um, and so what we have here is not an odorous, an onerous challenge, a bad challenge, but one that is gracious and life-giving. Jesus is not saying, I'm laying down a rigid set of, of rules, of disciplines that I will teach that if you do them, you may <coughs> be my disciples. Instead, he's he is issuing a glorious invitation. 
come, abide in my word. Come and abide in my word. And what's surprising in this passage is that Jesus gives this gracious challenge to a bunch of ornery, bellicose people who are refusing to do that. So this is the question here. What does it mean to abide in Jesus' word? <coughs> and uh, I like what one commentator says. It's, it's the, taking the idea of remaining. And he says, we could translate it this way. It means to make our home in his word. Make our home in his word. So I, where do you abide here in Longview? Well, you've got a house, you've got an address, you've got an apartment. What's your domicile? <coughs> well, here we make... Uh, spiritually, our domicile in God's word. To de- and that means to, de- to decide to stick with Jesus' word, to live under it in faithful obedience, and to per- persevere in loyalty to Jesus and his clear teaching about himself and the home and the world and the church. And the result of that, then, by making our life, uh, or the making our home in Jesus' word, is this. You then... You are then really, truly my disciple. So the test of genuine discipleship, first characteristic, is this. Do you make your home in Jesus' word? And if you do, you can, and if you do, and, and, or I can, if you and I can honestly say that we do that, then we can say that we're beginning to be real disciples of Jesus. It is as simple and gracious as that. But then Jesus explains the results of his challenge by, to abide and make our home in his word by two promises. Number one, you will know the truth. And number two, the truth shall set you free. This phrase is among the most often quoted texts uh, inside and outside the church. I don't know how many times people will say, totally secular, non-believing people, and the truth shall set you free. And you go, yeah. But that's not what Jesus, probably what we're thinking when we say that is not what Jesus is thinking about. Where is the truth found? In his word, in abiding in his word. And that true word sets us free. So uh, all too often in our context, this text is lifted from its context uh, here in the Gospel of John and is used kind of as an independent saying without any reference to who Jesus is and his ministry. And in this context, Jesus is making this promise you will know the truth and you will experience freedom from knowing that truth. So the truth in John's gospel is first of all, and this is important, the reality of God as he presents himself, as he's been presented in Jesus. We receive Jesus as he defines himself and not as we define him. The truth is, is not in the Bible is not an abstract concept. We make it abstract. Sometimes we, move, we use abstraction because we can say more. If we understand the abstraction, we can say more in a few words than we can say with a lot of words. But <coughs> the truth of Jesus is not an abstract concept. It's personal knowledge. Uh, we would say in more theological language, it's covenantal li- knowledge. That is because God has covenanted with us in his, uh, and come to us to favor us and given us benevolence, we respond by believing and receiving. And there's that dynamic there. It's personal knowledge. When, 
When we say we believe in Jesus, we're not saying that we just believe in a concept. We're saying that we know and love the person that we know. I can say that about my wife, Barbie, because we've been married 43 years, and uh, I know her. And, uh, and I know her in an intimate way. And that's kind of the, uh, the idea in the Bible. It's, it's, it's always relational, knowledge of God, knowledge of what we call theology. It ought to lead us to those relational aspects. We are, it's a relation with Christ. So Jesus is not inviting us to cram theological concepts into our brains, but to know him as the fountain of truth and grace. This knowledge of Jesus comes through making our home in his word. And I understand that to mean kind of this ongoing process in which we, our understanding of the greatness and the beauty of Jesus, <coughs> our love for him increases as we continue to make our home in his word. So there's, I, 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 there's a progressive sense of knowing the truth progressively selflessly. Is that right? Yes. Because we're all uh, on this pilgrimage called uh, discipleship or Christian life. And we're all moving towards the goal as Christians to know Jesus face to face someday. And uh, so this is a marvelous promise. Um, <coughs> what then about freedom? And what does that mean in John's gospel? Well, freedom in God's, John's gospel is the liberty of forgiveness and, the re- and a reconciled relationship with God the Father through Christ the Son. Now, we think of liberty. We're Americans. We have, a, we have a history and a culture that's been built upon personal freedom. And, I, I, and I, as an American, I, I embrace that. But it's too easy to take what we think about politically and transfer it as if that were the reality in the scriptures. That there wasn't any democratic society when Jesus spoke these words. And he's telling the people who are living under the domination of Rome that if you believe in me, you will be free. And so it must mean something else. So largely has to do with the liberty of forgiveness and a reconciled relationship to Christ and uh, to God the Father, through Christ the Son. John represents freedom here, uh, not what naturally comes to our mind, especially as Americans. Um, it is not the right to manage our life free of all the ties that might hinder us in the development of our own identity and our own authority. Uh, quite, about, quite a bit about what's going on today in the argument on the, about the trans community is they want to have their freedom to be who they are. And, um, but of course, that doesn't reflect the biblical idea, concept of freedom. Uh, to be paradoxically a slave of God or Jesus is to be free to serve God fully and wholly. So it's freedom, it's freedom, and Christ is speaking, is the freedom from sin and death. And this Jesus makes clear in the context of uh, John chapter 8. So true belief and discipleship are evidenced by abiding or making our home in Jesus' word as we cling to his word as the truth, as, as his truth um, and word for us in every area of our life. We are progressively set free from the power and the deception of sin. Now, and I also know many of you uh, read your Bible in a year, and that's certainly one of the ways that we make our home in, Bi- in, in Jesus' Word. Um, a disciplined reading program is essential to make, making our home in Jesus' Word. And I've been using different reading programs. I, I try to mix it up. Uh, I, 
the church we attend offers one. A brother in the church has this really nice read Bible reading program. So I've used that um, for several years. And and uh, this last year, I'm doing a whole different thing. I'm, I'm concentrating in the book of Revelation for my own edification and I hope my own sanity. <laughs> we'll see what the, about my sanity at the end. But um, there is different ways of the going deeply into to God's Word. Sometimes we need that kind of overarching uh, view of what's the different subjects in it, and other times we just need to dig deep into a passage. So I encourage you to do that. So that's the first pillar of discipleship in John. Now let's look at the second, and that's found in John chapter 13, verse 34, 35. And Jesus says this to his disciples on the night that he was betrayed, just before hours before he suffers and is called off to... to um, to be tried by the Jews and, and then the Roman Empire. He says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Okay? Discipleship, true discipleship, uh, uh, making a home in Jesus' uh, word. And secondly, it is love for one another. Love for each other, as Jesus has loved us, is the second pillar. It identify, it's an identifying mark of true, uh, true discipleship and, or believers in John's gospel. And I, I just mentioned it briefly, but this command comes from Jesus during the upper room discourse. It's just hours before a whole chain of events is set in motion, and Jesus uh, is betrayed, he, he's called off to judgment, he's beaten, uh, crucified. And in this, Jesus prepares his disciples for what lay ahead by giving them this instruction about his departure and how they should live. He begins with this commandment, love one another. Now, Jesus calls it a new commandment I give to you. A new commandment I give to you is that you love one another. And this raises the question, what's so new about love? I mean, in, in, in what way is the new commandment new? After all, the, the 12 disciples would have learned from their on their father's knees, the command to love God and to, with all their heart, mind, and soul, and to love their neighbor as themselves. That is fundamental, so fundamental to Jewish theology. Then, how then is this commandment new? And here's the, the kicker. The newness comes in this phrase. Jesus wants us to love, and Jesus speaking, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now, that's an arresting statement. Take time to think about that. We are to love one another just as Jesus has loved us. I don't know if I can do that. Not without, without, not without the power of the Holy Spirit. So, I wonder if any, I, I just wonder, as, I, as you read this and you kind of put yourself into the scene, you know, you think about, okay, did the disciples swallow hard when Jesus said that? Like, you dope. I mean, love, or maybe, maybe not. I mean, John 13 in the same chapter we find that none of them want to get up and wash the feet of the other because that was for slaves and that was uh, beneath their dignity. So they weren't going to serve each other. But then Jesus gets up and does it and gives them a, a real demonstration of what it means to love one another as Christ loves us. So what's the outcome of? the disciples loving one another as Jesus loved them. The answer is given here in verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
And in this uh, declaration, Jesus contributes two essential elements to the meaning of discipleship. First, disciples' love, love is in contrast with the world. He said, all by this, all the world will know, or all, everyone will know that you are my disciples. So there's, there's a contrast implicit in that. Um, the contrast with how the world loves. All those who are not disciples, who don't believe in Jesus, will see that brotherly love is the distinctive characteristic of Jesus' disciples. Now, back in, back in the, the first century, or third century, I can't remember, I said, Tertullian, one of the, called the church fathers, he made this statement in defense of Christians. He says, heathens are one, heathens or non-Christians, are one to explain with wonder how these Christians love one another, for they, the heathens, hate one another, and how they, the Christians, are ready to die for one another. For they, the heathen, going back, they are ready to kill one another. So Tertullian picks up this contrast between how Christians really love each other and, and how the non-Christians don't in the same way. I, had, I, had, I used to, when I was a pastor up in uh, Blaine, Washington area, uh, I would go occasionally to this uh, monastery in Mission, D.C. to, to take, have, have a prayer retreat. And I went with another brother who was a uh, Christian worker, and we were just uh, there bas basically by ourselves in the guest house. And uh, in the kitchen, little kitchen, they had a little kitchenette in the guest house where you could go in after, after dinner and have a, make a cup of coffee. And, and they had this cookie jar with this fat uh, um, monk, and it, and it said, Thou shalt not steal. <laughs> and, you know, of course, that was the invitation. So. But every once in a while, one of the brothers in the monastery, he, they'd come down and talk to us. And we had some really good, interesting talks. Uh, one night, uh, it, this was shortly after the big Jimmy Swagger uh, revelation of his sin. And he comes in and he says, well, what do you guys think about that? <laughs> this monk guy, what do you guys think about that? And we were like, oh, what an embarrassment, you know. And he said, well, we, we Catholics, we don't have, you know, we can't say anything. We had Pope, we had children. They go, ah, you know, just terrible stuff. He said, but I'll tell you what really bothers me about the whole thing. Because what, what happened was Jimmy Swagger had outed one pastor of a large church who was having an affair. And he, in turn, the past, that pastor got a private detective to follow Jimmy Swagger around and see if there was something he could accuse him of. And then they were fighting him, and the play actually was better. It was terrible. And so this monk says, what really bothers me, now the world is not going to say, see how they love one another. They're going to say, and I'm, I'm going to quote his words. See how they screw one another. And I thought, that is the best commentary I've ever heard. That our public sin um, becomes something that quite, that's, that's offensive to Jesus and causes us people to look away from Christ. So the love becomes a revelation to the world of the reality of belief in Jesus and the change that he makes in our lives makes the lives of all believers. The love the disciples exhibit towards one another is contrasted, as I've been saying here, in the world. Listen. The second important element, then, is this, that all disciples exhibit this love. All disciples exhibit this love. Jesus is not making a comparison between one group of disciples who love one another and another group of disciples who do not. He's the contrast is between the world and the disciples. This leaves no other option. And so, love is not a standard by which a superior believer is measured above a lesser believer. Rather, the love that Jesus is saying here is 
the standard by which true believer is set apart from the world. Now, there, there is a, a real challenge in the Bible to separate ourselves from ungodliness. But how do we do that? Well, sometimes we do it in mean, uh, legalistic ways. Sometimes we paper over the lack of love in our fellowship uh, with, with our, for our fellow disciples by throwing ourselves into Christian activism or narrowing our, our discipleship to a Bible study. If I might paraphrase 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 1, and I would, be, and I would say this, if I, attend, if I attend several Bible studies a week and have not love, I am nothing. Uh, Jesus doesn't say to be, that the world will know us, to know that we are his disciples if we attend Bible studies or have daily quiet time. He says the world will know that we are his disciples if we have love for one another. We cannot make the means of God's grace, which like Bible study and, and all legitimate things that we do as Christians, we can't make that the end of our discipleship. That's not the goal. That's the means. Now, I, I'm, I'm saying this, and I hope you don't think I'm trying to preach this to, to scold you. I, it's not my intention. I know there's love in this congregation because my wife and family, we, we, we experienced it. I mean, it's just, and your generosity over the years has just been wonderful. So we need to hear this and say, yes, maybe I could learn to love better. Maybe I could, there's avenues that the love of God needs to be expressed in my life. First Corinthians, uh, First Thessalonians, after uh, Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, after dealing with several issues, he begins to instruct the, the, the believers in brotherly love. And in chapter 4, verse 8 and 9, he says, now concerning brotherly love, you do not need anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed what you are doing. Now listen to that. That is indeed what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Okay, so Paul doesn't have any complaint here about their love quotient, right? He's, he's really happy. But listen to what he says. Listen to what he says. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. I mean, you just can't get enough love, right? So he's not, he's not beating them over the head. He's encouraging them to continue to grow in the very uh, evidences of God's work in their, in their midst. So Paul celebrates that evidence of love uh, that's present among the brothers and sisters. He says he doesn't need to instruct them because God has taught them uh, that love is uh, to love one another. And there's that evidence that, that he could point to throughout the province of Macedonia. Paul has no complaint, but he says, brothers, do this more and more. Brotherly love is the commodity that you just can't have too much of. Love more and more. That is my exhortation. So how do you know that, and how would you like your congregation here at Faith Stanley to be known in your community? You want it to be known as biblical? Yeah. Orthodox? Of course. Um, uh, what other great adjectives? So yes, but how about this? By this, all people will know uh, that you, as faith family, are the disciples of the Jesus that lives because you have love for one another. Does the unbelieving community that surrounds us know that we are disciples of Jesus because of the way we love each other? Think of the power of our witness uh, would have today if the world around could exclaim, as Tertullian did, in wonder, 
how do Christians love one another? Amen. Well, let me go on to the third pillar. And that's found in John chapter 15, verse 8, and that's bearing fruit. John 15, 8 says this, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciple. So here in John 15, Jesus takes, takes up the metaphor of a vine, teaching that the life of discipleship is like a vital, life-giving connection that a branch has with, or the vine has, uh, yeah, the branch has with the vine. True disciples will bear fruit because they're attached to the true vine. They're in vital relationship with God. We, we sometimes call this, um, this passage uh, the, our union with Christ. We're, we're in deep union. Christ is in us. We're in him. Starts using some of Paul's language. Um, I, I understand the words. I, I love the words. I don't know that I under fully understand the concept, but I'm, I'm learning. So those who profess to be believers who are... Or, um, are attached to the true vine and those who are false believers are attached to something else or unattached. Um, and, and they will not produce the, the fruit uh, that in the life that, they, that Jesus wants. Now this, this pillar is obviously related to the first two pillars that we've seen, making our home in Jesus and loving one another. And it's essential to interpret this be careful how we interpret this second part in John 15, 8. So to prove, so and so prove to be my disciple. Some have interpreted that to mean that it's through fruit bearing that one becomes a disciple of Jesus. And honestly, the, the old King James Version led to that impression because it was said that ye, uh, herein is my glor- Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so that ye may be disciple, my disciples. Uh, but this seems to suggest uh, that it's through the process of bearing fruit that one becomes a disciple. Most interpreters today, uh, based on the Greek text, understand it differently. Um, so what I'm reading here is the ESV. It says, so prove to be my disciple. In other words, one doesn't become a disciple by bearing fruit. Instead, one demonstrates that they are a disciple by bearing fruit. See the difference? The, put the bear, fruit bearing first and you get nothing but legalism. Put it as a consequence of your relationship with Christ and his grace and you have the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ. As disciples of Christ, we are constantly becoming more fully disciples. And, and so an older commentator by the name of Westcott said this, if some, something is always wanting or lacking to the completeness of our discipleship, a Christian never is but always is becoming a Christian or a disciple. And it is by this fruitfulness that he vindicates his claim to the name Christian. So what is the fruit that we are to bear? Well, you can notice here, reading through this passage, Jesus never takes time to define the fruit um, that brings glory to the Father. Some have understood the fruit to be uh, success in evangelism, and that's good fruit. And I hope many of you have had the privilege of leading someone to Christ and have participated with a group uh, of others who are, who are becoming Christians. I, in my first years of vocational ministry, I was part of a church planning team in Mexico City, and we just saw hundreds of people come to the Lord. It was the most exciting time. So we were very fruitful numerically. Others still see the fruit as the fruit, something like the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, uh, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And this, too, is good fruit. 
I don't see the need to choose one over the other as if being fruitful in evangelism were contrary to the fruit of the Spirit. <coughs> Looking at the surrounding context in John's Gospel, we see that Jesus washed the feet of his disciples and, and hear him emphasize the importance of love. So combining both ideas, we can say that by abiding in the vine, which is our union with Christ, we develop a life of virtue and effective gospel ministry that brings glory to God and reflects the 